Please turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament, to the book of Habakkuk and chapter 3. Habakkuk comes just after Nahum and just before Zephaniah, so very near the end of the Old Testament. And I'll just read one verse from Habakkuk 3 as we begin. And it's verse 2. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Let's look to God and ask for his help as we come to the preaching of his word today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you always give us light from your word. And we acknowledge that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And now we ask that you would Make it that today, not only because it gives us the absolute truth, it gives us divine truth, but also we ask it so that your spirit would come and enliven our hearts, even as we have prayed, revive your work. Do your work in our hearts today by the spirit, because if it's simply the letter of the word, it will not profit us. We need the help of your spirit for myself to preach it, for us to understand it, and especially to take it to heart and live by it and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So do that for the glory of your name, and we ask these things all in Jesus Christ, acknowledging our utter dependence upon him. Amen. Well, I'm departing from my normal preaching through the book of Romans. Uh, It'll just be a departure of one week. I expect to be back in Romans next Lord's Day, God willing. Um, I may preach another message or two on this subject, as I will mention. Um, I just want to give a brief explanation for why I'm preaching on this topic today. I have more than just one reason. Uh, One of the reasons is, as I'll mention later in my message, that it's because I have been considering in a more concentrated way recently, the circumstances around us in our world, which I'm sure a lot of you regularly do also. And the other thing is, um, I can explain by a brief history lesson. Starting back in the 1960s, there was a resurgence of Reformed theology, Uh, people getting excited about Reformed theology, which I just would use mean to, to, by saying that, just a biblical thinking, biblical teaching on some of the most important things in the Bible, but also a resurgence of what we could call particular Baptist churches. We could call this a particular Baptist church, a Reformed Baptist church, or a Calvinistic Baptist church. There was a resurgence of both of those things here in the United States and also in the United Kingdom. 
And back at that time, this is a very brief history, back at that time, um, and I came, I came among Reformed Baptists in the year 1980. That's when I first went to a particular Baptist church, if you will, and um, went to a church that believed in Reformed teaching and understanding of the Word of God. And back at that time, one of the things that stands out to me is that in those churches, there was a lot of specific praying for revival. It's not to say that there isn't any more. I think we regularly hear prayers for revival in our prayer meetings, um, not necessarily using that word. Uh, but I don't believe we see that kind of prayer or hear that kind of prayer on the level that there had been back then. And there are probably some good reasons for that. Some of the reasons, I think, are as we think about what has been, has been called revivalism. There are some things about revivalistic theology, if you will, or revivalism that cause us to uh, see many red flags and to state and think about many cautions that we have to give ourselves and give others. And God willing, as I said, I will, in a coming message, say some things about revivalism and state some of those cautions that we need to make. But that's just to give you a brief understanding of why I ended up preaching on this subject of reviving us again. Praying and thinking about this prayer here in Habakkuk 3.2, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. And so let me start with some observations about my opening text here, Habakkuk 3, verse 2. And it's just going to be some observations. I'm not preaching a textual message on this text. I just want to have this be my opening text. But in, this, in the setting, and I think we heard preaching, I think Pastor Carlson preached through the book of Habakkuk a handful of years ago. He certainly went through it. Uh, at least in a summary way, in the adult Sunday school classes on the Old Testament, all the different books of the Old Testament, not that long ago, but also I think he preached a whole series of sermons on Habakkuk. So I'm just going to give uh, a very, some very brief observations about this opening text. It's a prayer, O Lord, it starts out, and it's a prayer, as it says at the, in verse 1, of Habakkuk the prophet, so the writer of this book, and it was his prayer. And Habakkuk prayed this prayer because as he looked at his situation in which he lived there in Israel, he saw a very sad spiritual state. And the state was so sad, it was such a low spiritual time in the nation that God had brought judgment upon the nation. And part of the message that God gave to Habakkuk, which was very discouraging to him, is that there was even greater judgment coming. And you can read about it in the early parts of Habakkuk. God was going to bring some foreigners. It happened to be uh, Babylon. It happened to be the Chaldeans that God was going to bring and really bring judgment upon his people. And that put Habakkuk, as you can understand, a godly man who was a true believer in God in the midst of many, many unbelievers and uh, many people who were not in a good spiritual condition, it brought him to a state of grief 
and even unbelief. Unbelief that God would do such a thing. And you'll see it if you read the earlier chapters. The reason it was so hard for Habakkuk to swallow is, as I said, God was going to bring judgment and he was going to use a foreign nation. And the foreign nation, you could argue, was in many ways even worse than God's people themselves. They were not only unbelievers, people who didn't believe in God, they were false believers. They were people who believed in a false religion and they were worshipers of false gods. They were idol worshipers. And so Habakkuk, being a good man, could understand that God would want to chastise his people because of their unbelief, but he could hardly fathom that God was going to do that using idolatrous people and warriors from such a place. And so he was beside himself in a sense. And part of the book is his arguments with God. How could you do such a thing, Lord? Revive us, yes. But don't do it that way. But nevertheless, Habakkuk is brought to understand that God is sovereign. And God is righteous in all he does. And God is wise and good in all that he does. And so he says, despite all of these things that I understand what you're going to do and it makes me afraid, yet here is my prayer, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. Make it known. Come and do a wonderful thing and in wrath, because I know you're right to pour out your wrath even on your own people, remember mercy. So there's his prayer. That's our, my observations about the opening text. And that leads me to the second main thing. And that is, as we consider this subject of revival, what I've called revival, uh, let's consider a definition of that. What, is, what does that mean? Revival is a noun. In the text here, we have a, ver a verb, and that's revive. So the, ver the words are related. One is a noun and one is a verb. And what does the verb mean? Well, let me just start with the English word. The English word revive means this. It means to come or bring back to life or consciousness to resuscitate. Or second definition is to come or bring back to a healthy, vigorous, or flourishing condition after a decline. That's what the word revive means in the English language. And that's a good translation of the original word we have here in the Hebrew. Revive your work. Bring people to life. Resuscitate people. Or bring people who maybe have been alive spiritually to a more healthy and vigorous state of life. A more flourishing condition they've been in after a decline. To give an, a definition of what we mean by revival when we use it in a theological sense and what theologians and church historians are talking about when they use the word revival, let me start with a theologian and to some degree church historian of the recent um, century, J.I. Packer. Some of you are familiar with his name. He wrote this in a... In a um, 
a theological dictionary in an article entitled Revival. He said, over the last 300 years, Protestant theology has defined revival as God's quickening visitation of His people, touching their hearts and deepening His work of grace in their lives. And then he says it is essentially a corporate occurrence. So it's God working in a mighty way to do spiritual good for His people, and it's not confined to just His work in one or two people here and there, but it's a more of a corporate occurrence. It, it works in the body of Christ more broadly. Maybe a church or many churches. Another man who wrote a book on this subject named Paul Cook wrote this. He said, revival is different in essence. I'm sorry, let, let me back up. I want to quote a man named George Smith first who wrote a book on revival. He says this, a revival is a work of grace brought about by the Spirit of God on the souls of men, and in its nature, it differs only from the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit in the enlightening and conversion of men by its wider prevalence and greater intensity. In other words, it's the same work that the Holy Spirit does in one individual or a few individuals at any given time, but it's always wider in its scope, affects more people at the same time, and then also it's, it has greater intensity. In other words, the work, in a sense we could say, um, goes deeper, faster, if you will. And then another writer that I was starting to quote, Paul Cook, says this, following what George Smith also wrote. He said, Revival is different in essence from any other true work of God, but only in degree of power and extent of the work. So that's what revival is. It's God working in a normal way, saving people or bringing somebody out of a spiritual slumber, for instance. Maybe a Christian has been backslidden. Maybe he's just become lethargic in his Christian life and walk with God. But God revives him. I've had that happen in my own life at various times. I've, I've, my heart has grown cold over the years. I've left off some good habits that I've had at times because it's easy to do that because of the world and the flesh and the devil. And God has kind of awakened me, brought me to my senses and made me go back to those things. And I've believe I was in a better state spiritually after that happened than I was before. But as these men have pointed out, it's, as Packer said, a more corporate phenomenon. Or as George Smith said, it is wider. It has a wider prevalence and a greater intensity. And as Paul Cook said, it differs from just a conversion of a person or an arousal of someone and a bringing him back from a time of backsliding, it is in degree of power and extent of the work, it is different. It's greater in that sense. Pastor Smith mentioned as he was leading the service that we interviewed two people for church membership this past week. 
And as he said, it was a great delight, as it always is, to hear someone recount the work of God in their life and in their soul. One of the persons basically grew up an atheist and was an atheist till a couple of years ago and then confessed to us about how God had worked in her life. Another one was at the other end of the spectrum. She, spectrum. she grew up in the church, but of course, even though she had Christian parents, she didn't come out of the womb as a Christian. But over time, God impressed upon her that she in fact came out of the womb as a sinner and was still, even in her teenage years, a sinner. And God told us about how God began through the ministry of the word, both in her home and in the church, how God brought her to himself. Now, both of those accounts were explaining to us wonderful works of God. They were announcing to us works of God's sovereign Holy Spirit. They were things that were the answers to many prayers. Because some of the prayers for both of those people were my prayers. But certainly the prayers of parents, spouse, and others who knew and loved these individuals. And both of these things are causes for great rejoicing. I'm sure when you read those testimonies, you will rejoice in your heart. And when these two are baptized in a couple of months, you will be rejoicing out loud with the people of God. <clears throat> I mean, I can think of, for instance, um, a report that we just, I heard during the time of the pastor's conference. And I was just um, reminded about it again today. There's, there's a brother who's involved in a church planting effort down in North Carolina. And he mentioned for our joy that today they're going to have their first baptism at that congregation. And the young lady that's going to be baptized actually grew up here at Trinity Baptist Church. And she is going to be making a good confession today in her baptism there in Haw River, North Carolina, in the presence of many witnesses. And I'll bet if you were one of the parents of that young lady, you would be rejoicing with joy unspeakable to see that happen. Some of you, if you have uh, had it happen here with one of your children that you've prayed for for many years, you would think at that moment that heaven had opened and that God had come down in an unusual way. And you might just say to the Lord on that day, Lord, now receive your servant. Because having seen that, I am ready to come home to glory, Lord. So every work of God, every work of God is wonderful. It is the work of God's Spirit, even if it's just one person that is involved. It's an answer to prayers. It's a cause for great rejoicing. But it's not what we would call revival or awakening. Now, each isolated incident, incident like that could be part of a revival if it occurred as part of a broader work of the Spirit during a concentrated period of time. I thought about one of the reports of one of the men who stood up in this pulpit on Sunday night 
at the beginning of our recent pastor's conference. He was from Coconut Creek, Florida, Pastor Dikama. And he gave a report about what God has been doing there in the church in the last couple years that's leading them to say that though we have contemplated enlarging our building in recent years, he said, now we're saying it's a necessity. And as he was telling what has gone on in the last couple years, if I remember right, and my math was decent, I think it was around 80 people added to the church just in 2022 and 2023, just to date. In other words, there's still a couple of months left in the year, and that's what God has done. Now, I might look at a situation like that and call it revival. But I wouldn't compare it to what we have historically called revival in the history of the church. And just to give you a taste, especially if you're not all, at all familiar with these kinds of things. Many of you are, I know. But I just want to read a brief section from Jonathan Edwards, he, who is a, a theologian of the 18th century. who pastored in New England. And he wrote this book, or I shouldn't say book, some have put it into a small books, but it's part of his works. And he wrote this treatise entitled, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in the Conversion of Many Hundred Souls in Northampton, Massachusetts and the neighboring towns and villages of New Hampshire in New England. He wrote this in 1737, and this surprising work of God occurred in the early 1730s. And so I want to read from Edwards at this point. And he, he, here's what he wrote, just diving into what he said. He said, as he describes what God was doing and had done, he says, this seems to have been a very extraordinary dispensation of providence. God has in many respects gone out of and much beyond his usual and ordinary way. In other words, he's acknowledging this is not something normal, even though it's something normal, but in terms of the prevalence and the depth or intensity of it, it is not. He said, the work in this town, Northampton, Massachusetts, and some others about us has been extraordinary on account of the universality of it, affecting all sorts, sober and vicious, high and low, rich and poor, wise and unwise. It reached the most considerable families and persons to all appearances as much as others. In former stirrings of this nature, the bulk of the young people have been greatly affected. In other words, he's saying sometimes we've seen God convert a whole bunch of younger people all at once. He said, but now old men and little children have been so. Many of the last, the little children, of their own accord formed themselves into religious societies in different parts of the town. A loose, careless person could scarcely be found in the whole neighborhood. And if there was, if there was anyone that seemed to remain senseless or unconcerned, that would be spoken of as a strange thing. 
He says, I am far from, from pretending to be able to determine how many have lately been the subjects of such mercy. But if I may be allowed to declare anything that appears to me probable in a thing of this nature, I hope that more than 300 souls were savingly brought home to Christ in this town in the space of half a year, and about the same number of males as females. By what I've heard Mr. Stoddard say, I think that was his grandfather, and he was a pastor in the same church, this was far from what has been usual in years past, for he observed that in his time, many more women were converted than men. Those of our young people who are on other accounts most considerable are mostly, as I hope, truly pious and leading persons in the way of religion. Those who were formerly loose young persons are generally, to all appearance, become true lovers of God and Christ and spiritual in their dispositions. I hope that by far the greater part of persons in this town above 16 years of age, in other words, he's saying, this is what I hopefully think actually happened, are such as now have the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And by what I have heard, I suppose this is so in some other places, particularly Sunderland and South Hadley. He says, just one other sentence for you. He said, when God in so remarkable a manner took the work into his own hands, there was as much done in a day or two as at ordinary times with all endeavors that men can use and with such a blessing as we commonly have is done in a year. Now he was saying though, it's done in a day or two over a period of months. So in other words, we might see in a day or two, half a dozen or a dozen people converted and brought to the Lord in a, in a day or two when under normal conditions, that godly man in his ministry would see that many in a year. And God did it over a period of months at a time. That's what has been called, that's part of what has been called historically the Great Awakening. Awakening is a synonym for revival. So these are the kinds of things God has done. And it may not be that exact thing Habakkuk was praying for, but that kind of thing. When he said, Lord, revive your work. And when people pray, revive us again, O God, or pour out your spirit in an awakening or a revival, this is the kind of thing they mean. We see such things in the Bible. It's not just in the Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening. We see it in the Bible. On the day of Pentecost, when we... we, we it was mentioned in the Sunday school class today that in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when Peter stood up to preach and then people responded, how many were baptized? 3,000 in one day. That was the kind of thing we're talking about, a mighty work of God. And the church was then empowered. Here are these 120 disciples of Jesus who were tasked with taking the gospel to the nations were in a sense cowering in a room, in an upstairs place in Jerusalem, 
waiting for God to give them the boldness and the level of faith and the power of the Holy Spirit to go out and do the work God had called them to do. But God did that on that day. And many, many sinners were saved. And then we see other mighty works of God beginning on that day and going throughout the apostolic age through uh, the first century. We see it in the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, where God worked in such an unusual way that people were turning from uh, their works of witchcraft and things like that, and they burned them all in the public square, all their books about witchcraft. And there was such a work of people turning away from idols to the Lord that we're told that the silversmiths went and proclaimed to the Roman governor that these people are, are turning the world upside down here, and we need you to run them out of our city because of the great economic destruction they're bringing to our city and especially to our trade. I've read about um, places in, in Ireland during the 1800s, the mid-1800s, that there was such a work of God that many, many pubs or taverns had to close because they didn't have patrons anymore. You can read about things like God has done as well in the time of the Reformation where the church was reformed in such a great way and thousands upon thousands of people were converted and brought to faith in Christ. Or read about the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the Welsh revival that went on at the beginning of the 20th century and so on. Read about these things. Let's turn to one biblical text to look at a similar prayer to Habakkuk's. It's Psalm 85. Psalm 85. And in Psalm 85, we're going to look at the first handful of verses here. First of all, the first three verses, the writer says, Lord, you have, been our, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. And some of you, I'm reading from the New King James. Some of you have a little bit different verb tense there. Mine is a perfect tense. Lord, you have been favorable. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people, etc. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. That's a perfect tense. The New American Standard Version and the English Standard Version, some of you would be reading those. They use a simple past tense. So it's just looking back to the past and it says, this is what you did in the past. We might not feel the effects of it now. And I think that's a better translation, especially when you come to verse five, because verse five says, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? He's basically saying, this is something you did in the past, Lord, but now it's different. And so what the writer is doing, he's reflecting on what God has done there in Israel in the past. There were good times, he says. You, you brought back the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You took away your wrath. 
But now he says we've fallen on hard times spiritually. So here are his petitions in verses 4 through 7. Restore us, O God of our salvation. In other words, take us back to that kind of a time and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Kind of like Habakkuk's prayer. Revive your work in the midst of the years. He says, will you not revive us again? Lord, some of us, we might be believers, but we're, we're, we're cold. Our, the, the flames of our faith are just gone. It's just embers now. Fan those things into flames again, O Lord, that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Deliver us from these difficult times. If they were experiencing judgments, deliver us from these judgments. And there are many unconverted people around. Deliver them from their sins with a work of salvation. There's a plea for revival. That's the idea. It's like we sang in one of the hymns. Revive your work, O Lord. Your mighty arm make bare. Speak with the voice that wakes the dead. There are many dead people around here. Unconverted people, sinners, lost and undone in their sins. Wake them up, O Lord, by the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. And make your people here. In other words, there are some people sitting on a given Sunday, they're saying in church, who are your people, but man, you would hardly know it to look at them. Routinely falling asleep under the preaching of the word. Lethargic when they get out of bed on Sunday, wondering if they're even going to come to church. What good does it do me? They might be God's people, but they're in a bad state. So, Lord, wake the dead, the unconverted, and make your people sit up and take note. The next stanza, revive thy work, O Lord. Disturb this sleep of death. Quicken the smoldering embers now. Maybe someone is a child of God, but his spiritual strength is at a very low ebb. Quicken the smoldering embers now by thine almighty breath. Or the next stanza, revive thy work, O Lord. Create soul thirst for thee. There may be some people that have no soul thirst, no hunger for God whatsoever. Save them, Lord. Create soul thirst in their hearts. And hungering for the bread of life, may our spirits be. Some of us look back on those early years in the 1970s and 1980s. And we say, you know, I can remember coming to church and it's like everybody here. Well, I didn't first come to Trinity Baptist Church till we were meeting in this room, but some people will look back to the days of the Cracker Box or uh, Grover Cleveland Junior High, I think it was, or phase one over there in the other room between 1980, I think, and 1985, some people look back to those days and they say, yeah, you know, it's like there was an electric atmosphere back in those days and everybody seemed, they really wanted to hear the word of God in a way that it doesn't seem to be that way now. I'm not saying you bad people. I'm saying Dave, bad. That's what I'm saying. 
but we remember those things. And this is the kind of thing, brethren, that we're, we want to see happen again that God might work. So that leads me in the second place to address reasons to pray for revival. Reasons to pray for revival. And the first thing I just want to mention is the history. I gave you an account of some of the things of the history of revival. But the, I want to talk about the history of revivals and their effects. And I won't say that much. But I want to quote Edwards again. I want to quote Jonathan Edwards in his writings on revival. I'm quoting from a different book, but it's a direct quote of Edwards here. And Edwards said this, as he was remarking in his writings about what God had done there in Northampton, Massachusetts, and the areas around back in the 1730s. But then also he wrote some observations in some of his, his treatises about revivals more generally, outpourings of the Holy Spirit of God. And he said this, It may be observed that from the fall of man to our day, the work of redemption, the work of salvation in its effects, has mainly been carried on by remarkable communications of the Spirit of God. In other words, not just the normal day-to-day work of the gospel and the work of the church and so on, but these kinds of outpourings of God's Spirit. He said, though there may be a more constant influence of God's Spirit always in some degree attending His ordinances, and I hope we can say that, yet the way in which the greatest things have been done towards carrying on this work always has been by the remarkable effusions or pourings out of the Holy Spirit at special seasons. In other words, in what we would call awakenings or revivals of religion. That's what he said. And so I I thought of an illustration that would, I think, get the, the notion across what Edwards was saying. We, all, we hear a lot, for instance, about dangers and problems associated with the climate and with climate change. And I can remember back, I think I was still living in Minneapolis, and I started reading about what a bad thing um, that my lawnmower is. And so there's a big push now to have electric lawnmowers to the point that I went to find a lawnmower the other day at Home Depot And I could hardly find a single gas-powered mower anymore. If you want to hear the end of that story, you can ask me because it doesn't matter. (laughs) But I remember reading a book about climate change and, and so on and about all these bad gases and chemicals that our cars and lawnmowers spew into the atmosphere and so on. And in this book, I was reading about this subject and it was talking about natural phenomena such as volcanoes. And I can't remember because I couldn't find the book on my shelf. I must have lent it to somebody. If, uh, if I lent it to you and you have it, you give me the stats I'm looking for later if you would. <laughs> but it, it either talked about Mount St. Helens or Mount Pinatubo, which are up, um, what do you, um, Uh, eruptions, eruptions of volcanoes that occurred in my adult life. One in Washington State, one in, I think, the Philippines, right? Mount Pinatubo. And 
it said that one of the, whichever one of those it was talking about released chemicals and gases into our Earth's atmosphere more than millions upon millions of lawnmowers would be able to do in many years, in a moment's time. And this is the kind of illustration that Edwards is talking about here. He's saying that God, sometimes in these works that are very unusual, yes, but they do more in a very limited period of time than happens sometimes in all the years in between. Revivals of religion, Edwards says, does that. Now, I haven't done the math, so I can't say whether Edwards is right or wrong. I just look at it this way. This is something God is pleased to do. He has done it many times in the history of the world. There have been wonderful and lasting effects. One of the things, if you read the account of someone like Jonathan Edwards, is that this is not just a thing that is temporary. Because he writes about, he writes treatises years after this thing occurs. And he says there's a very high percentage of these people that are still Christians years down the road and are still walking with God. And we know the effects of what God did back then in Northampton, Massachusetts, just as if it were yesterday still. But that's what I mean when I speak about the history of revivals and their effects. If you think about those things, if you read about them especially, that gives you motivation to pray that God would do such things again. And then that leads to my next point, and it's just logic as we think about it. If what God does in those times is a good thing, and we look at our present situation and we say, boy, we could really use a good thing like that nowadays. That's just logic. And it's part of the reason that as we sang in another one of the hymns that we sang earlier, that we plead not just for mercy drops from God, but for showers of blessing. That he would drench us with conversions and drench us with people repenting right and left and running in the ways of God's commandments in the ways that we haven't seen them maybe for a long time or maybe even ever as God's people. We see the poor spiritual conditions around us. We long for better. We believe in grace. We believe that God does actually come during the course of human lives in this world and save people. Bring them to genuine repentance and genuine faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that. We believe in repentance. That like we heard in the Sunday school class today, one of the reasons uh, uh, that is behind who we bring into the church, we believe in repentance. That when God saves someone, he actually changes them. It makes them into new creatures. And in fact, those are the people we want in the church of Christ. Because they're the children of God. So we pray in line with those convictions and we long for God to be glorified. And we're told by Jesus to pray that God would be glorified and even pray that God would be glorified in those ways. I mean, what are the three most important things Jesus ever told us to pray? They're right at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, aren't they? Start here. Hallowed be your name. Lord, we want people to see that you are holy we want people to acknowledge that you're holy and we want them to treat you 
as the holy God that you are. Well, how does that happen if not when God saves people? And then the second petition we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Well, how does his kingdom come? Well, it'll come when he appears on the clouds in the greatest way ever. But how does it come between now and then? It comes when he causes people to bow the knee to King Jesus and makes them his subjects and part of his kingdom by saving their souls. We want that to happen. We pray for it. And we pray that his will would be done. That is, people would obey his commandments. And the more, the better. So we want God to do those things in a wholesale way. And so we pray things like we pray in the refrain of that hymn. Showers of blessing, Lord. Showers of blessing we need. Mercy drops round us are falling. In other words, you're not, it's not like you're doing nothing, Lord. Had a few baptisms last month. God willing, maybe at the beginning of the year, we'll have a couple more baptisms. You're not doing nothing. Mercy drops round us are falling. We acknowledge it. We should never despise it. But for the showers, we plead. So that's a reason to pray for revival. And a third thing is just the conditions around us, like I said. Just the conditions around us are reasons to pray for revival of religion. And I'm not taking off my jacket because I have a long way to go yet. I'm taking it off because I'm just too warm. But the conditions around us. Turn back to Psalm 74 for a moment. Psalm 74. And let's just look at a few texts. And then I'm going to be done for the day. It's entitled, A Contemplation of Asaph. And it's a similar situation to Habakkuk's, similar situation to what we had in Psalm 85. The psalmist looks around him. He sees that spiritual life is at a low ebb in Israel. And so he prays accordingly. Oh God, why have you cast us off forever? It seems like it's forever. Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? He, he may be able to think of many reasons why it does. But he's acknowledging his grief about the situation and yet he wants it to change. So he prays, remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. And I, I, when I pray this, and I've prayed this many times through this text, I, I think of the church of Christ in our day, brethren. And you, you tell me if you think I'm wrong to do this. Tell me later, not now. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. Think of the church of Christ more generally in our day and age. They set up their banners for signs. Didn't I hear that said this morning? We'll never put up a gay pride flag here. Was that today that that was said? Yes, okay. So some churches do, brethren. Some churches have put up their banners for signs 
in the church of Christ. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees, and now they break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They've set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs, signs for good. There's no longer any prophet, genuine men who come from God, who speak the word of God. Nor is there any among us who knows how long. Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your right hand, even your right hand? And here's the prayer for revival right here. Take it, your right hand, out of your bosom and destroy them. A man might put his right hand in his bosom for warm back then. We put them in our pockets. It's kind of like saying, God, don't just stand around and look at this. Take your hands out of your pockets and work, Lord. One other text, well, not my last text, but before I go on, go on. Acts chapter 4, verses 21 to 33. Acts 4, verses 21 to 33. That's the whole text, I won't read the whole thing. But I'm going to start in verse 29. But let me give you the setting. In chapter 3... There's an account of how Peter and John were going to the temple and they, they healed a man who was there. God healed the man through the apostles. And then they preached. And in chapter 4, at the beginning, they get arrested because of preaching about Jesus. And then they end up getting released because the Jews don't know what to do with them. And then in verse 21, they go to their own people, the Christians, the church, and they have a prayer meeting. I'm just going to jump into the middle of that prayer meeting and prayer in verse 29. So they look at these circumstances that they're going to put us in prison if we keep preaching in Jesus' name. So they say this, now, Lord, look on their threats. Look at what your professing people are doing. And grant to your servants, the apostles, the preachers, that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through, your, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And as we read, going on in the text into chapter 5, we read in verse 14, and men and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Brethren, regardless, when we look at the circumstances around us, regardless of how God has ever worked in the past, in the Bible 
or in subsequent history of the church and the world, or regardless of how he ever is going to work again. Do I know that God is going to give us something like the Reformation or the Second Great Awakening before I die, or even before Jesus comes again? Do I know that? I don't. I don't. We don't know how God has worked or is going to work in the days ahead. But I do know this, and you know it too, when circumstances are bleak in our world, when they are morally discouraging, when there is evil all around, we know this, God's word calls us to cry out for him to visit his people again and to revive his work again in the midst of the years. We know that on an individual level, if it's just me, we know it on an individual level. Listen to or turn to there if you'd like, but I'm not going to be waiting for people to turn between uh, for the next seven minutes or so. But Psalm 119, verse 25, and then verse 37 of Psalm 119. Here the writer says, My soul clings to the dust. No comment about anybody around me. My soul is clinging to the dust. Revive me according to your word, O Lord. And verse 37, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Maybe it's something so innocent as, Lord, I'm sitting at my computer, whether it's during the work hours or my leisure hours, just trying to get a little news. And there's some clickbait. And whether it's the kind that nobody absolutely should ever click on or the kind that I know will just lead me to 20 minutes of wasted time. Lord, verse 37, in, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. When, when things are at a low ebb in my life, that's how I need to pray. And if it's a church-wide thing, like there's spiritual declension in the church. I won't take the time to turn there, but think of passages like Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the letter to the church at Ephesus. What's the complaint there? You've left your first love. He doesn't say you're not true Christians. He says you're not what you were the month after I saved you. You're not what you were as a church the year after you constituted as a church. You've left your first love. There's spiritual declension. There's coldness. Or maybe in some of the other places in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, there has been false doctrine that has crept in. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Or some of you have followed the doctrine of Balaam. And you've gone into immorality and other forms of worldliness and even idolatry. Stop it! Repent and do the first works. Those kind of times are times to pray. Another text I had written here, I won't turn to it, is James 4, verses 1 through 9. But that's where the apostle James says to the church that things are at a low ebb among you people. And there are things that go on that I've either seen or I know of. And so he says... Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Lament and mourn and weep. In other words, over your own sins. 
that you're just yawning about right now. That's the point. And then also it comes, we could say, in a nationwide or even a worldwide way. When we look at the world around us, brethren, there are so many things that we would never have guessed. And I'm, I'm in my 60s. We never would have guessed we'd have seen it in our lifetimes that in the past couple of decades we have seen in this world. And it makes us feel like Habakkuk, I hope. It makes us feel like um, Asaph. It makes us feel like the sons of Korah. And it makes us want to pray things like Solomon said in 2 Corinthians 7, 2 Chronicles 7, in verse 14, if my people will humble themselves and pray, he says, I will bring repentance. I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. Let me just turn to one other chapter here as we close. It's Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. A couple of, couple of prophets before Habakkuk that we saw earlier, or no, maybe several prophets before that. Before Amos, he's before Amos, and um, right after Hosea. Joel 2, 12 and following. Here were difficult situations. Again, God was judging the people. So here's the message that comes from the Lord through the prophet. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, etc. I'm dropping down to verse 17. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Brethren, circumstances in the world, in one sense, are always dire, aren't they? There's always opposition to God's work. Psalm 2 tells us that. The leaders of this world, the, the nations of this world, have gathered themselves together against the Lord and against His Christ. And even in good days in the church, like when Paul said, there's a wide open door of opportunity for me. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, he finished the sentence by saying, and there are many adversaries. There are always many adversaries, brethren. God's word is always being neglected, despised, and broken blatantly all around us in the world. But we need to be like the writer of Psalm 119 who said as he looked at those things, Lord, rivers of water run down from my eyes because your law is not obeyed. And brethren, there will always be around us in this world a multitude of unconverted people. Like Jesus said, the vast majority of this world are on a broad road that leads to destruction. So what led me to preach on this topic, even though the things I just said are true, I think we are at a time in the history of the world, in the church, 
in which things are at a low ebb. And if you pay attention to what's going on in the world, brethren, you know what I'm talking about. And I think it's right. I think it's called for, for us as God's people to say, Lord, take your right hand out of your bosom. Pour out your spirit, O God. Rend the heavens and come down, O Lord. Make bare your holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and let all the ends of the earth see the salvation of God. And I'll just finish by reading one other part of the end of Joel chapter 2. Joel 2, beginning at verse 28. Joel says, and this was first fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my servant, men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass when God does a mighty thing. And this is especially a message for you if you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus Christ. You're not a Christian. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. I close with this message. Not only has God at times changed societies of people, changed towns like Northampton, Massachusetts, changed counties like whatever places he was talking about in New Hampshire, changed sometimes countries like you had in Europe in the days of the Reformation. God saves individuals. And the, the way he does is if you call on the name of the Lord, the Bible says you will be saved from your sins, from your guilt, from the power of sin in your life, and from the wrath of God in hell forever. And all you have to do is call on Jesus' name and trust in him. And that's what I urge you to do today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your work and ask, as we conclude this morning, that you would revive your work in the midst of the years and glorify your son, Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen.